0: communications is about taking people with you on a journey and in order to take people with you on a journey you need to persuade them and the way you persuade people is by appealing to them on a human level welcome to open sap invites thought leaders your invitation to learn with us on the go
1: Welcome to a special Open SAP Invite Thought Leaders episode with Charlotte Otter on the power of storytelling. If one thing unites us all throughout the ages, it's surely our fascination with great stories that provide emotional connections and lasting memories. So whether you're currently reading stories to your children, writing corporate speeches or technical documentation, whether you're an aspiring writer or a book lover and ferocious reader, this episode is for you. Listen to Charlotte tell her own inspirational story of how she navigated a successful writing career while raising her family and pursuing her dream of becoming a published author. I'm your host, Elisabeth Riemann. Let me introduce you to Charlotte Otter. Charlotte Otter is Head of Executive and Employee Communications at SAP She has extensive experience managing strategic and executive communications across multiple industries. A former journalist, she believes that storytelling can be a powerful tool to drive business results. South African by birth, Charlotte has lived and worked in South Africa, the UK, and in Germany. She's the author of two crime fiction novels. I'll let Charlotte herself tell us more. Let's say hello. Hello, Charlotte. Welcome to Open SAP Invite Thought Leaders. Thanks so much, Lizzie. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really excited that you're with us here today to talk about the power of storytelling and for you to inspire us with your insights and experiences as head of executive and employee communications at SAP, as a passionate storyteller, and as a published author of crime fiction set in your native South Africa. Charlotte is a book lover myself. I'd like to start our conversation by asking you, what were your favourite books or authors to read when you were growing up?
0: Well, I was an obsessive reader as a child, and before I could read, I was always found in a corner with a pile of books, trying to teach myself to read. Um, so. It's always difficult as a reader to pick your favorites. But if I think back to my childhood, um, I was a big Nancy Drew fan, which um, has some resonance, you know, with the kind of books I ended up writing. Um, Huge fan of the Narnia books, which I reread obsessively the same way my kids reread the Harry Potter novels. Um, And, you know, but really anything I could get my hands on. Sometimes books that were too adult for me but my parents were unable to control uh, the appetite for reading.
1: Oh, I've always had a real voracious appetite for reading and really lovely to hear your choices as well of books for yourself and for your children too. And Charlotte, in your personal opinion, what are the key elements that really make a great and compelling story?
0: Well, I think that there that there is a certain um, pattern to a story. Um, it needs to have a setting that fascinates us. It needs to have a setup that is appealing. It needs to have characters that are well-rounded, that are interesting, that appeal to us on a human level and who maybe we recognize either ourselves or others um, that we know in those characters. And there needs to be some tension um, so, there needs to be a story arc is very important because that's that's the way that we get gripped um, and pulled into stories. Um, and all of those elements need to be embedded in beautiful writing. So, choices of words, choices of language, um, and often the language needs to match the stories. So... Um, You know, for example, if you're writing a a children's book, you wouldn't write in long, long, uh, multi-syllabic words, long sentences. You would write short, descriptive sentences. Um, In crime fiction, for example, the genre that I write in, um, the sentences also need to be fairly short, um, and you have to uh, not use too many metaphors. The language shouldn't be too overly descriptive and flowery. Whereas, if you're writing literary fiction, Literary fiction tends to be very interior, so it's about people's thoughts and feelings, and then there's much more space for metaphor, um, for longer sentences, um, and for more interior monologues. So um, the, the elements are very varied and different, and I can assure you that writers' groups, and I belong to some, uh, obsess over these details together um, in order to get those story elements right. mm mm-hmm. Charlotte, as an
1: experienced writer and author yourself, would you consider yourself a born storyteller? Or is there a particular event, author, or novel that's inspired you to write?
0: So uh, my mother tells the story uh, that when I was five years old, I said to her, I want to be an author. And um, it's hard to imagine a five-year-old even knowing the word author. But apparently that's what I said. And I think it was a passion, um, you know, f- from so small that I can barely remember it. Um, but it's a passion that has been with me my whole life. Ah, oh,
1: That's amazing. And can you remember your mother's response to you when you said to her that you wanted to become an author?
0: Well, later she told me that she didn't call me Charlotte James for nothing. Two famous writers, Charlotte Bronte and Henry James, combined in one.
1: <laughs> combined in one. Oh, wonderful. That's brilliant. And can you remember when you first started writing a story than yourself? If you can stay with your childhood just for a moment longer, um, when did you pick up a pen and put to paper and, and start writing your first story?
0: Um, well, English was my favourite subject at school. Reading and English were my favourite subjects. Um, so I always shone um, in those subjects at school. I don't have a memory of first stories that I p- wrote myself.
1: And Charlotte, how has your passion for writing and um, reading from an early age really influenced your career choices?
0: So I knew for sure that I was going to study English literature at university. However, I also knew for sure that um, I'm not a born teacher and that I didn't want to teach. So the most logical uh, step for me was to study journalism. And I had had a very fantastic opportunity in my last year at school to do an internship on my local newspaper which then went on to be the the newspaper that I characterize in my novels. Um, So I studied English literature, had an absolutely fantastic time um, surrounding myself with books and literature and literary people. And then I went on to do a postgraduate qualification in journalism and took my first job on a um, newspaper in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And what elements of
1: that job did you really like? What were the highlights?
0: The job was absolutely terrifying. It was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. So in South Africa in those days, um, you earn your stripes as a journalist on the crime beat. And so I spent the first year doing crime, which was covering crime and also as a court reporter, which was interesting challenging scary i moved to johannesburg which is a vast city and i would have to drive myself across the city find a court um you know set up there manage to interview the prosecutor so that i could get the background story from them it was um scary and challenging but i got to write every day and that was you know, the beauty for me. So, I would go out into the field, do my research, interview people, but come back at three or four in the afternoon and put together my story and submit it. And then the next day, be able to see my name, hopefully, you know, my story and my byline um, in the newspaper the next day. So, it was an intensely um, satisfying job from that perspective.
1: Mm -hmm. But with the darker side to it, I guess, as well, and there's no preparing you for those stories that you're exposed to and the ones that you cover, but really lovely to hear that you just had the thrill for storytelling and for
0: writing there as well and for seeing your stories in print the next day. And if I might say something to, to the darker side, it was, um, it was at a very difficult time in South Africa's history. It was shortly before its transition to democracy. And as we see around the world now, democracy can easily be threatened. And there were all kinds of um, actors and players trying to de- um, destabilize the country shortly before the first democratic election. So it was a very stressful time just to be a citizen. Um, It was a super exciting time to be a journalist, but um, I often experienced um, firsthand things that were very frightening.
1: Charlotte, you now work as Head of Executive and Employee Communications at SAP. How did you make that transition from a career in crime journalism in South Africa to working in IT in Waldorf, Germany?
0: Yes, so... um, I I lasted for about a year or 18 months as a crime and court reporter, and then I moved into PR in South Africa and began working for Anglo-American, which was one of South Africa's big mining houses, in a PR, in a corporate function. And then after a couple of years, uh, my husband was working for SAP in Joburg, had the opportunity to come to Waldorf for two years, and we were married, we moved together, and we've been here ever since. Um, I needed to find a job. Um, and I very much wanted to work at SAP. that was 1996. Um, it was quite hard to find a job in Heidelberg if you couldn't speak a word of German. Um, but SAP was at that time was hiring English language technical writers. So my first role at SAP was um, as a technical writer, which was terrifying in a completely different way from being a crime reporter because I had no background in software. and as a technical writer, you're really the first beta tester of a piece of software because to be able to document it, you have to be able to test it so that was another baptism by fire. Um, so I spent three years as a as a technical writer and and really learned my way around the software, learned how to ask people questions so that I would get the answers that I needed in order to be able to to document the software and learned to get over my fear of anything technical.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really good to hear. And I think maybe a background in journalism also helps prepare you to ask those questions to developers. I've done technical writing myself at SAP too. And when you're first new to the job, it's very difficult to, to have the courage sometimes to ask these difficult uh, technical questions and really get the details that you need in order to write the documentation.
0: Yeah. yeah. And what was interesting at the time was that um, the software cycles were much longer so, um, you know, you would, I would spend nine months of the year sort of, you know, it's normally a year's cycle. So I'd spend nine months of the year kind of testing and trying to learn, to learn the pieces of software that I'd need to document. But you could only start documenting once the developers had released it. And then I would need to do a year's work in three months. It's pretty intense. And I do think that the um, the much tighter software cycles of today are far friendlier uh, to technical writers as well as to developers.
1: And if we look at your professional experience today, how do you think communications and storytelling really fit together in the corporate world and at SAP specifically?
0: So I think storytelling is very important for any leader. And it's very important in communications because... Communications is about taking people with you on a journey, and in order to take people with you on a journey, you need to persuade them, and the way you persuade people is by appealing to them on a human level, and the way that we do that is with storytelling. You know, the thing about storytelling is that it appeals to a very ancient instinct within us. So, you know, our ancestors would, would sit around the fireplace and tell each other stories. It's the equivalent of the family sitting around and watching Netflix together nowadays. <laughs> but um, it appeals to us on such a basic human level, we don't even know that we're being appealed to. By our stories, it's it's really very much part of our of our of our instinct. So I think that for leaders and especially leaders at SAP now who are trying to lead um, us towards change, in order to take people along on that journey, very very important to be able to tell stories.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really good to hear. And what are your highlights of your focus um, with communications at SAP? What are some of the best parts of your job?
0: Um, I've worked with some fantastic executives, um, and that's been an incredible privilege. So, in executive communications, we work with the board and with um, the very senior leaders of the company, Um, and it's been an amazing privilege to observe very, very senior leaders at work. And I said to one board member when I stopped working for them, um, I feel like the last year and a half has been... um, you know, just sitting in on your team meetings has been like uh, an MBA by default. So, um, you know, it's, it's been, that's been an amazing opportunity and a huge privilege for me. And a relationship of trust, I guess, too. Trust is a huge part of it, yes.
1: Charlotte, one thing that I'd like to know is at SAP, how do you coach executives with the skill of storytelling? Yeah,
0: that's so interesting because executives are humans like the rest of us. And there are some executives that we've worked with who are just natural storytellers. It just flows out of them and there's no coaching necessary. And that's, as an executive communicator, that's bliss for us to be able to work with somebody who, you know, we might say, remember that story you told me about your mother that would fit in beautifully in this moment and then they just run with it. And I've I've seen that happen to incredible effect. Other executives are coachable and they're willing to learn and prepared to learn. And we try um, to help them find the stories that are theirs because that is the most important thing. It's this, you know, there's no point in them telling stories that don't belong to them because we all have... we. As audience, we can immediately sense if something is inauthentic. So what we do with the leaders that we work with is that we try to help them find the stories that fit the niche of what they're passionate about, their credibility, so who they are as a leader, and their target audience. And once a leader finds their storytelling niche between those three aspects, then they're away. Um, And it sometimes takes a couple of months to work with a leader to try and help them find what that specific niche is. Because some people are so focused on, when we say credibility, I mean their actual role. Some people are so focused on their role, they don't have time to be able to explain what their passion is, or they're so focused on their audience that they don't have time to, to work out what their passion is. But once they are clear on what all three are, Mm-hmm. that's the that is the beautiful moment where they start to be able to tell the stories that are authentic and match them as a human being so that they're able to bring their audiences along with them and then some folks can't um and what's interesting about the people who struggle with storytelling is that in order to be able to tell stories you have to be able to be vulnerable um because storytelling is about saying that's a moment where I failed or that's a moment that brings up sad memories for me or that's a moment where I was challenged. And some people are not comfortable with showing that level of of vulnerability. So we see see within that spectrum from the brilliant storytellers to those who can't tell stories, um, you know, there's a very broad array, but um, it's a fascinating part of the role and of the job that we do.
1: I can imagine and so satisfying too to really mentor someone in an executive and really give them the confidence to show themselves as a true person. um, So that we as a customer or a listener, as the audience, we really have the authentic emotional connection, right? And we don't want just want to see somebody in a suit on the stage in the bright lights. We really want to hear about their own personal experiences and insights and really have that emotional connection with them. And, And Charlotte, I think it's interesting because you said you've always been passionate about English literature, storytelling, writing, but you always knew early on you didn't want to become a teacher. So I think it's interesting that now professionally you coach and you you mentor executives to really have the aha moment when they can really become storytellers. How is that for you?
0: Well, it's interesting you, you point that out and I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, I think it's because I, I know in my heart of hearts that being able to tell stories, and they don't have to be brilliantly told, um, it just needs to be a couple of sentences sometimes, will make people appear more human and more authentic. So I know in my heart of hearts that it's a successful road to take. Um, And it is exciting that we're able to help people um, in executive communications to find their storytelling comfort zone. Um, It is exciting and it's a super part of the role.
1: That's amazing. I'm a little curious though. Can I ask, what specific techniques do you use with executives who are a little bit unsure about showing this human side to their character and and really bringing their own story across? How do you help them overcome this initial hurdle and have the confidence to really embrace that?
0: Well, I remind them of stories they've told me. You know, everybody, you know, communications is a very time intensive role. And for executives who take the time to do their communications properly, they spend a lot of time with their communicator. So you have those human connections with people. And I'm able to say to them, remember that story that you told me about that one time when you were at a customer, this is the moment where you can use that story, you know.
1: That's really good that you can prompt them with that and give them that encouragement. And do you think in some cases, when we look at SAP, it's a global company. Many people speak different languages. Obviously, German is a major language that we we speak at SAP. Um, How much of an issue do you think this language barrier is when it comes to speaking freely and expressing emotions and telling stories? Do you think that kind of plays into some of the insecurities of
0: executives, maybe? I think it can be a challenge, definitely. But I am filled with enormous amounts of respect for um, German board members and executives who conduct their entire professional careers in in their second languages and are still able to tell stories. I um, have profound respect for that because I know how obsessed I am with about my first language and expressing myself in my first language. And I cannot imagine... Um, the leap, the intellectual, but also emotional leap that it takes to do that in a second language.
1: Thank you for sharing those insights with us, Charlotte. I'd like us to turn our conversation now to your life as an author. And I'd like to ask if you could tell us the story about how you became a published author.
0: Yes, I'm delighted to. So, um, you know, after my three years as a technical writer at SAP, um, my husband and I decided it was time to start a family. And I, I had um, we moved to London and I had my first two of my three children in the UK. And for two years, I was a totally dedicated um, stay-at-home mother. But I am a person with a lot of energy. And I realized that it was not enough for me to only be parenting. Um, and I started a blog. And it was just at the time in the early 2000s when blogging was um, becoming very popular. And I had a, a WordPress blog. Um, and it kind of surprised me that my blog got some attention, and I was not one of these mummy bloggers with millions of followers. But um, the things that I wrote um, evoked something in other people, so it I started to realize that there was something there. I also managed, you know, through blogging, I was able to engage with an audience of other writers and aspiring writers, and I. Um, was inspired by them, and then we moved back to Germany. I um, was a stay-at-home mother for, of three children, <laughs> um, and I realized that if I didn't start writing the book that I felt was in me then, I probably never would. So I um, began to write, at the same time still maintaining my blog. So I used the blog to document the process of writing the novel, which was actually really useful because it's helped me go back and sort of um, understand a little bit more about the writing process. So um, the, the, the no- first novel that I wrote is called Balthazar's Gift. Um, it is about a journalist. It's set in Pietermaritzburg, which was my hometown in South Africa. And the theme is around AIDS, I wrote 14 drafts of that book because my goal was not just to write one story, and my goal was also not to write one draft, call it a book, and self-publish it. I wanted to be published. So I wanted what I wrote to be recognized by the people who I saw as the gatekeepers of the industry. Mm-hmm. I had some lucky moments along the way. Um I um, got some really great feedback from my writers' group. I engaged with a literary agent relatively early on, and she and I did various drafts of the novel together. And then as she started to bring potential publishers into the mix, I was able to engage with them and do different versions of the story with them. So as I say, in the end, 14 drafts of the novel. The... Delta, between the first draft and the draft that was published, was an idea and one sentence. That's how, much, that's how much hard work went into rewriting it so that it became something that was publishable. It's a very long journey. What time scale was that? That was about six years. Six years? Six years and working in the cracks and corners of parenting three very small children.
1: Mm-hmm. And that feeling when you first saw your published book and you could hold it in your hands, how did that feel?
0: It was an amazing feeling. It was a validation of, of all the work. Um, but I think the most exciting moment for me was, um, you know, because what, what you do as a writer is that you, um, you, you apply to agents. So you, you send cold um, requests to literary agents and um, I was turned down by many and the most exciting moment for me was when I got a yes from a literary agent saying she wanted to represent me because it was the first indication for me that um, the story had legs and my mother says she remembers hearing hearing me scream
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's amazing
0: oh that's so good
1: So you've actually published two successful crime fiction novels, Charlotte, Balthazar's Gift and Carcliffe Blue. Can you tell us about your novels a little bit now and provide a short synopsis before we talk about the writing techniques that you implement there?
0: Yes, of course. So um, Balthazar's Gift is set shortly after South Africa's transition to democracy. As I said, in my hometown of Peter Maritzburg, the main character is a crime reporter called Maggie Clutie. And unlike me, who was a very nervous and anxious crime reporter, Maggie is fierce and um, um, not scared by anything. And um, she comes upon a crime scene and it's very normal for reporters to ask questions and write the story but she becomes um, very obsessively involved. And and the crime scene is um, the murder of an AIDS activist. Um, And that sets her off on a whole trajectory of discovery. And, you know, I loved Maggie. I I became very attached to her and readers love Maggie. So it was very clear to me that the second novel needed to continue with the main character of Maggie Clutie. So in the second book, Cockloof Blue, um, Maggie returns to Peterborough after stints in London and Johannesburg. And the um, setup of Karkloof Blue is that a very well-known ecologist has apparently committed suicide. Um, his wife is convinced it's not a suicide. And Maggie sets out to investigate and gets um, naturally involved with the crime and ends up... Um, you know, discovering who the criminals are and bringing them to justice. So, you know, she's much more than a crime reporter. Um, you know, she is a, a fierce detective um, with elements of Nancy Drew, who I loved as a child, uh, but also elements of Lisbeth Salander from The Girl the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is a book I, I read as an adult. So she's, um, she's curious and she's feisty and she's tough. Um, And she really was a a, a fun character to write. That's amazing. It's lovely to hear you talk
1: about Maggie and about all her different characteristics. And there's just so much energy there. Um, That's incredible. How do you get these ideas?
0: Um, It's a very hard question to answer. And I think you'll find most novelists respond in the same way. Um, I I think for me, it's about the thing that drags on your soul the most in the moment of writing. So for the first book, Balthazar's Gift, it was so shocking to me that the new South African government in the beautiful new democracy was full of AIDS denialists. Um, So it was so shocking to me that having achieved democracy Um, this new government was letting its own people down by not acknowledging the connection between HIV and AIDS. Um, It just seemed to me to be such a letdown um, after the relatively peaceful transition the country had had. It seemed to me so brutal that people were not recognizing that. And as a result of not recognizing the connection between HIV and AIDS, um, so many people were dying. Um, and it was often the very young, economically active people who were getting AIDS and dying. Um, and they left this v- vast amount of AIDS orphans, which to me seems so tragic. It's tragic. Yeah. So I th- I think that it's it's the thing that you can't let go of, the thing that you that you worry over, the thing that strikes against your soul, um, you have to kind of investigate that and dig deep and find where that's, what, this, what the story is. Mm-hmm.
1: And so when you wrote Balthazar's Gift, was it a cathartic writing process for you?
0: I think it was in that um, as, a, as a South African, it was hard to leave. It's a hard country to leave. So I think I was uh, very much processing um, my love for my country.
1: That's so lovely to hear, both the love for your country and also how it's important to write something that really touches your soul. Charlotte, your protagonist, Maggie, you say she's a really feisty and amazing detective. How did you develop her character and the plot and pace of your novel? What techniques did you implement?
0: One of the things I did with Maggie in parallel to writing the story, is that I would write a diary in her voice. And that diary didn't make it into the book, but it was my way of getting to know her. Um, you know, I think when you write in first person, especially as a novice writer, there's a challenge of confusing the eye of the writer with the eye of the character. Um, So I I wanted to make sure I knew very much who she was. So that was one technique that I used. Um, I did a lot of rewriting. Um, You know, writing experts tell you to kill your darlings. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the delta of one sentence and an idea to to a published book shows you how many darlings are killed in 14 drafts. True crime fiction. To, To kill your darlings you have to have the strength to let go. You have to be able to let go to, of a beautiful paragraph that might describe a sunset, but it doesn't serve the story. Um, and crime fiction has a very specific formula um, and you have to let go of anything that doesn't serve the formula.
1: Mm. You describe yourself as a feminist crime writer. What does this mean to you exactly?
0: Yes, um, I read a lot of crime fiction um, in my early 20s. I didn't read much crime fiction while I was writing my novels, and I have since read some. Um, But what drove me crazy was the setup of nearly every crime novel I read was The Naked Body of a Beautiful Young Woman. And in fact, if you go into any bookshop now, read the first opening pages of most novels. It's either about the disappearance, abuse, or murder of young women. And I wanted to write against that tropey. So I wanted to write crime novels that were edgy, that were gripping, that were challenging, but that were not based on the trope of a a woman having to be naked and dead.
1: It's really great to hear that edgy crime fiction novels really don't have to always centre around beautiful, dead women. And Charlotte, I'd also really like to say that I think Maggie's a truly gutsy and authentic female protagonist. When we look at the genre of crime fiction in the broader sense, what is it, do you think, that makes it so appealing to us?
0: Crime fiction is appealing because it takes people out of the everyday. you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to get a great crime novel for my holiday. You know, it's, it's very separate from people's lives. Although having said that, when I was marketing um, Balthazar's Gift and I was working in a bookshop in my hometown in Peter Maritzburg for a day at a writer's table, um, you know, a man came up to me and he said, what's your book about? And I said, it's about crime fiction. You know, it's about a murder that happened in Peter Maritzburg. And he said, oh, no, that's too close for me. You know, that's that's my life. So, um, you know, not everybody is untouched by crime. Uh, Many people are.
1: Charlotte, for you as a female author, what's your personal view? Do you think that society in general maybe is more critical of female authors?
0: I think that um, in terms of the way that authors are received, there's still a way to go. I think since I started writing, there's been... um, a great improvement in the, in the reception that female authors get as opposed to male authors. But what, what we have seen is that, you know, if, for example, a male writer writes a story about a family and, you know, the interaction of a family, he's writing about, um, you know, the human condition. Whereas if a woman writes a novel about a family and the interactions between a family, she's writing a kitchen sink drama. Um, But I think that publishers and, you know, people who are the gatekeepers of the industry are starting to recognize that.
1: Charlotte, I was fascinated earlier when you told us about the 14 versions you wrote of Balthazar's Gift before you finalized everything for publishing. So as an experienced and dedicated storyteller and writer, what would your advice be to aspiring writers who are listening to this podcast? What should they focus their time and energy on when wanting to turn their own writing dreams into reality?
0: I think that if writing is a passion you do need to practice. And I think that writing at work is different from creative writing. So I would say to people, start small. I mean, for me, I described how I started with my blog and I realized that the way that I wrote was was getting a response from people who read my words. So I would say start small, whether it's poetry or short story or a diary. Um, Start small. We're always recommended as writers to have a regular practice. Um, So daily writing helps. I think for a lot of people who are are novices, have a burning passion, but don't know how to get started, there's the fear of the empty page and the fear of getting words down. And one of the things that helped me in those moments where I was staring at an empty page is um, there's a, a practice called free writing, where you get up early in the morning And without thinking, you write in longhand three pages. And even if you write, these are the most boring words in the world, I can't wait for my breakfast, you just write and write and write through three pages in longhand to break the fear of the empty page. And that helped me, that technique helped me a lot in those moments.
1: That's really good practical advice. Thank you. And for all fellow book lovers listening, I'd like to conclude today's episode by asking you, if possible, to share with us three books from your current reading list or all-time
0: favourites. So I'm currently reading and loving uh, a novel called Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Um, She was the winner of the Booker Prize in 2019 and she shared the 29 Booker Prize with Hilary Mantel, who is my um, all-time favourite author. And I absolutely adored her Cromwell trilogy, which is, I think, the three most brilliant books ever written in the English language. And little known fact is that when I lived in the UK, I actually lived in the same apartment building as Hilary Mantel. I never met her or saw her. She was clearly too busy writing. But I used to bump into her husband um, in the parking lot as he was bringing the groceries home from Sainsbury's. That's amazing. Did you know when you moved in? Yes, we were told there's a famous writer who has the penthouse suite.
1: Okay, but it was only some kind of like um, famous writer, no
0: further kind of indication of who it might be? No, I knew it was her. I knew it was her, but she was clearly a much more dedicated writer than me because she never left the building. Uh Uh-huh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Charlotte, thank you so much. It's been
1: absolutely amazing to speak to you today about your passion for writing and also for us to learn how we too can become better storytellers. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. Thank you for listening to Open SAP Invite Thought Leaders with Charlotte Otter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, rate, and leave a review. And don't miss your next invite. Subscribe now.